Welcome to episode number 35 of the Rockonomics Podcast, where we talk to people in and around the music business about their personal journeys pursuing their artistic endeavors. I'm your host, Dill, and today we sit down with Gym Class Heroes drummer Matt McGinley. A fellow upstate New Yorker, Matt and Gym Class Heroes have enjoyed platinum success with a unique combination of hip-hop, rock, and funk while touring with the likes of Fall Out Boy, The Roots, and headlining the 2011 band's Warp Tour. More recently, Matt has been a contributing music producer at the nationally syndicated radio show This American Life, as well as the critically acclaimed podcast Shit Town. I met up with Matt on a blistering hot afternoon while he and his band were on the never-ending summer tour with 311 and The Offspring, and our conversation with a much-needed air conditioner humming behind us went something like this. Where is Rochester, where you would say is your, where, where would your hometown gig be? Geneva, no doubt. Yeah. Could, where, okay. Um, so we would ideally play at the Smith Opera House, um, which is a fantastic, probably 1,200, 1,300 capacity venue. Okay. Um, that's right in Geneva? Yeah, okay. it's right downtown. Okay. It's kind of one of, the, one of the jewels of Geneva, I think, um, which is a really great theater was where we had our high school graduation, and um, we've also played a few handful of shows there um, with Gym Class Heroes. Uh, I think we hold the the record for like fastest sellout like of that venue, which is an important thing for your hometown. I feel right. like anywhere else, like I don't I don't know that it's that important or meaningful, but um, yeah, hopefully if we do a hometown show, we'll be back at. Smith Opera House, or um, there's a handful of other venues that have popped up uh, in Geneva, which has been exciting to see over the years, so those places are probably an option, too. Um, and growing up there, you guys got started in high school, were you like around freshman year, is that correct? Yeah, so um, I met Travis, I think, my first day of freshman year in high school, and um, there's kind of like a handful of kids that were like, quote-unquote, alternative Right. my school so it's like you tend to find each other you know when you have similar music interests that are slightly outside of maybe the mainstream um, so yeah we pretty quickly found each other and um, had a lot in common musically and culturally I think and so we just started making music and, and a lot of that initially was like covering other bands that we were into um, which at the time was like Deftones and Rage Against the Machine 311 um and I think at a certain point we we started to get really curious and intrigued by hip hop music, and so I think that became a large part of what we were doing. Also, um, which I think was kind of the origins for like uh, rock infused with hip hop. Right now, me being from a small town similar to yours in the same area, where did you find alternative music? I mean, I guess MTV might have been a source, but I, I just remember we had Top 40 Radio, or we had Albemarle and a rock radio out of Syracuse and Rochester, mm. but where, you know, where did you, you know, get turned on to Deftones and 311? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I guess, I guess you sort of find a source and you plug into it. For us, like, I remember on, like, Friday nights at, like, 9 p.m., there was a college radio station in Geneva that would usually play really great like alternative like punk music and like they would take requests so we would always just call up and request all the songs we wanted to hear because it was not as easy as it is now to just like <laughs> access any song at any point in time right. uh, so yeah I, I think like alternative radio there was a great station in Rochester called The Nerve that played like a lot of that uh, yeah like 120 minutes on MTV was really good they were, right. they were like early adopters of bands like Deftones um, and yeah, record stores were still a thing, you know. Um, the guy behind the counter. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and we had great relationships with all. We revered all of the guys that worked at the record store in Geneva. <laughs> they were our idols, and uh, I think it's been a peculiar experience, I guess, to sort of come out of the days of rock radio and 
different um, record stores, and then sort of transition over the course of my career into streaming platforms. Right. And, um, you know, like I watched the music industry struggle with like how to uh, how to deal with MP3s, <laughs> and then eventually I watched them find a solution to how to deal with MP3s, and like um, and I saw that transition to streaming. So it's been. I don't know what my point is other than it's been interesting to watch right. and then also be a part of. It seems like your career, I mean, if you guys got started uh, late 90s, more or less, in high school. Yeah, 97. Um, you know, the, the revolution happened around the turn of, turn of the millennium, mm -hmm. correct? So you guys kind of were, you know, moving you know, moving on up as that thing was all changing. You, you guys, do you feel you're a, you know, a, a post-Napster band or a pre-Napster band or I think we're post-Napster I guess if I had to qualify because I don't recall too much of our stuff floating around the Napster universe um, but there was also like lesser known platforms not too different than Napster I mean I think about Pure Volume was a, right, was a yeah. site that uh, I think was largely responsible for a lot of our initial success pre- Fuel by Robin, pre-getting signed to a record label. I think it was because of the success on that platform that we did eventually get signed. Right. Um, so, were you guys ever like the mice in the MySpace generation? Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. MySpace was was definitely big for us. I think in terms of developing uh, like a public, like a fan base, like an interest around us as individuals. I think the MySpace thing was really great. Pure Volume was a little more focused on how to deliver the actual music mm -hmm. and put it in people's ears. Um, so I think that kind of operated like MySpace, but um, provided more of a vehicle for getting our music heard. Okay. I don't recall MySpace having much of like a built-in way of like, it could show fans what you looked like and like what you were interested and in. And five songs, things. wasn't it like a five song? Uh, little radio play thing. I, it's, that sounds vaguely <laughs> familiar, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess all that stuff's important. Like, it's I think with any generation, it's like, so it's not MySpace now, and it's not Pure Volume now, it's, it's, it's moved on to something else. It's Instagram, or it's like all these other things, but it's like, whatever the current platform is, I think it's like, I think it's important for artists to sort of try and work with that yeah. and embrace that. I think you can be stubborn about it and, um, you know, stick with what you know, but nobody wants to see that. Yes, yeah, no, to adapt or die. Yeah. Or evolve or die. It is. I, and I almost think that that's a healthy, that's a healthy perspective to have as a career artist or a veteran artist or an aging artist. Like, I remember at a point in our career, um, we had sampled some music from an artist and it became really clear that they didn't understand sampling and they were really uncomfortable with it and it, and it made them upset and I understand that um, but at the same time we, we had also sampled a different artist of that same era and that artist was and I'll even say who that artist was. That was Daryl Hall, and he was so stoked about it, and he like wanted to meet us, and like um, you know became close friends with Travis, and like a really beautiful thing blossomed from that. Um, and I think I think about him because it's like he he embraced like the younger model of right. music production, right. which at that time was heavy sand. You know, rather than, like, not understand it or choose to sort of, like, you know, say, well, you know, when I was coming up, we didn't do that. Right. This is what we did. He sort of, like, tried to understand it and embraced it and, in my eyes, became really fucking cool. So. <laughs> well, didn't you guys have a tour named after him? We totally did, yeah. <laughs> we did a lot to win him over, so. <laughs> um, so I, I saw an interview um, with Travis that he said early on, that you guys recorded a lot early on. Was that just, like four-track stuff, or, you know, how did, what, 
tell me a little bit about that. Did you guys come out of the gate kind of getting stuff down and demoing a lot of things? Yeah, I think we we recorded a ton, um, but it was never of any official capacity. Even a four track would have been like <laughs> a big deal. Um, I remember very specifically we had this alarm clock radio that was my mom's and it had a cassette deck in it right. and you can record and we we experimented with placement on it and we found that you know with the contours of the living room that we were practicing in if you put it like just in the far corner and there was like a plant that you would kind of have near it maybe the plant added some sort of acoustic baffling that was beneficial but we found we could make really good enough demos for us to be like able to assess you know where the song was what it needed I think there's something very important about like hearing it back like, yeah. um, so I think you can learn a lot and so what, what we would do is we would make a lot of recordings just in rehearsal we might rehearse all day and then in the last like 15 minutes we'd be like okay cool do you want to like lay this down so one of us would walk over and hit record on the alarm clock and then we would record it and then just had that to listen to and to study from all week until we rehearsed again. And then eventually we would go to a studio, an actual studio, with microphones and, uh, you know, 16 channel boards maybe, and, right. um, not alarm clocks, and we would record something that would be able to get put out. Okay. Um, and forgive me if any of this is wrong, I, I, I rely on the internet for a lot of this. <laughs> but are your first three, do you have, you have um, Head Candy and Greasy Kid stuff and For the Kids, are those your first three releases? Yeah, technically those are, I mean, that, that was just sort of stuff that we like released on the scale of passing around in school. It was okay. just something to sell at shows, really. Um, it's nothing that like I would be thrilled to play for anyone, which I think is a fairly common uh, thought, maybe that most mu musicians have at this point in their career. Um, you don't ever hear people like look back on like their very early, their first few recordings and think, "Oh, those songs were terrific." You've right. got to hear those. <laughs> Now, are any of those, like, a 16-track recording, or did any of those Those go? would all be, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Our first, um, like, I guess, professional recording experience, I was in 10th grade, and um, our parents had, like, given us permission to not go to school that day, because the studio was, it operated during business hours, and so... Was it in Geneva? It was in Lockport, New York. It's Watchman Studios, where I still go, even to this day, like, if I have to track drums for something... I also have a studio at home, but sometimes it's nice to not have to set up the mics myself. Um, yeah, so we would record at Watchman Studios, uh, and it was great. Like, very happy with it. Um, Money-wise, were you guys paying for it with, you know, gig money or just allowance money or like, how how was how was business done back then as high yeah, schoolers? Yeah, I'm trying to recall, and like, it's. It, I feel like scrounging is what we did to pay for all this stuff. Um, you do know, you remember like a ballpark? Was it like a thousand dollars to do two days? Oh or, or God, a day yeah. or like it was bucks? Uh, maybe two hundred and forty dollars okay. to do a day. We would cram as much as we could. There was no two days. There was no four days or five days. It was you got one day, um, and you had to get as much done as you could. Um, so yeah, we would ask friends. Um, and we would scrape it together. And your parents at the time, they're behind everything, like giving you permission to skip school. I mean, skip school sounds <laughs> harsh, but giving you permission to take the day off of school to record. Yeah, I think they all saw, like, that it was something that was, like, like exciting a sport. to us. Something to yeah. do, you know. It is, and it, it was like a sport, but it's also, like, I think with sports, a lot of the times there's, like, adults that are sort of leading and orchestrating planning, scheduling, and all this. Like, to do a band in high school at the level that we were aspiring to do it required us, just as teenagers, to do all of that, to do the leading and the scheduling and arranging and all this stuff. So, I, 
and I'm a parent now, and so I think that if I saw my children, like, taking a really, like, just the initiative on their own to, you know, to move something forward, and um, I think I would be inclined to say, yes, you can skip school, because that seems like, seems like you're working really hard, and and I see that, you know. What about uh, playing out live? Were you you playing... You know, at high school dance, were you playing at Hobart or William and Mary or doing any of the bars or clubs? I would say we did all of those things. Um, and eventually, when we graduated high school, we all went off to separate universities within the upstate area, which was fantastic because now there was like four new markets that we all were sort of embedded within and could find out. Um, you know, oh, this place has bands play on, like, Thursday nights for, like, open mic, or, like, you know, um, this big national artist is coming through my school on this date, like, if we win this battle of bands, we can play, like, the opening slot, you know, and so we were able to, like, basically spend every weekend of, like, my college career, like, just traveling to our separate respective uh, college schools. times. <laughs> where were you at? I was at uh, SUNY Oneonta. Okay. Where I remained until I dropped out in my going into my senior year um, to basically do gym class full time because I was uh, we we had just gotten offered a recording contract with Fuel by Ramen. Okay. Right then. Now, now, what led up to that? Like, did you guys? I'm just trying to trace the timeline. Did you guys get on the Warp Tour before any of that happened, or was this all kind of at the same no. time? No. Yeah, we uh, we played a few local shows on the Warp Tour, um, kind of right as we were getting signed to Feel Better Ramen. Um, but, yeah. And how did that come about? How did the signing come about? Um, but were there any other, you know, labels poking around? Were you guys sending your stuff out? very aggressively. We were certainly sending our stuff out, um, but I don't think that that's the channels in which we were signed. It basically, like, the legend, as I'm understanding it, is that, um, right, there was, so there was a graphic design artist from Chicago who had discovered our band through Pure Volume, and he liked it enough to reach out to me, um, and so we, we began talking back and forth, and uh, he was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm a photographer also, and I'm going on tour with this band Fall Out Boy next week, uh, so I'll play them some of your stuff. And I was like, oh, cool. And then uh, Pete from the band Fall Out Boy, who's kind of like the mogul of the band, um, really liked it and saw a greater potential for our band, so shared it with Crush Management now our management um, and also Fuel by Ramen. So it's basically through that connection that I think we were able to secure a record deal and, you know, management and all that. But I think it was because, like, I mean, we were also just as happy to do all that. We were literally doing all of the things that a record label or a management would do for an artist. We were already doing those things. And so... I remember during that summer when the label and the management were like looking at us and vibing us out. It wasn't just like it wasn't like we just like were like just waiting for them to offer us the deal. We were right. like, well, that's fine. We have to just like do everything we can to like show that we're super hungry and ridiculously serious about this. So that's when we started just like going super hard. So we we're like booking our own tours. Um, we shot a video for like 50 bucks maybe around Geneva. Um, we are basically just doing it, anything we could to show how like delusionally optimistic we were about our career. Right. Um, and monetarily, are you taking everything you're making off gigs and putting it into either renting a van or buying a van or you know, getting on the road? Yeah, most definitely. Um, we were always very like self-sustaining, frugal, um, we we were certainly never collectively making a dollar from it was like everything went towards gas uh, you know and I think like at the time we had fairly low overhead I'll say uh, it was mostly like 
gear and instruments we had been playing since we were in like seventh grade. So it's safe to say those had all been paid off. Uh, and yeah, I mean, just whatever we could do to get to the next gig, we would do. And I remember, like, actually that summer, the thing that I think sealed the deal for us um, in getting signed was Fallout Boy had offered us a show, and it was in Iowa. And we were just like, whatever, we'll get there, you know. And so we bought this, like, beater van. It was the grossest, grossest van you've ever seen for $300. And uh, it broke down after, like, maybe seven days on the road, but it got us to Iowa, which is the most important thing. And <laughs> it was there that we performed, and then I... I think Pete gave the go-ahead to the record that was like, yeah, they're good, let's sign them, you know. And I also remember, like, we were, we were just thrilled to be there and be a part of it. And so, you know, we packed up the van and said thank you, and then, like, peaced out and moved on to the next city. And we were, like, 30 minutes down the interstate, and we got a call from Fall Out Boy's tour manager, and he's like, uh, you guys forgot your money, you forgot to get paid tonight. And we were like, we didn't even fathom that anyone would pay us, like, for that opportunity at the time so we were like oh, we'll be right back so we turned around and uh, we got $100 and it was amazing for us <laughs> like it was, it was a king's king's ransom as they say so were you guys fairly naive to the business end of it or were you kind of getting schooled as it, as it went along and I guess that, that's a question too like being on the cusp of being signed like once you got signed was anybody kind of bringing you along to how things work and how things are paid for, or was it kind of learn as you go? Um, yeah, I would say we were super naive from the jump, uh, and then it was kind of like learn as you go. Um, we certainly, like, after we got signed and established uh, a touring career and a fan base, um, we started to have a larger team, um, so we expanded to have, like, a business manager, uh, a booking agent. Some various extensions that could help us make informed decisions financially, uh, and yeah, I would say we were very, very green though. And I think, like, especially initially, even to this day, like I, I kind of try and not make decisions that are informed heavily around money. For right. me, it's like. I just want to do the cool thing, and I want to, like, prioritize, like, quality. So, you certainly do have to make a lot of those decisions, especially, like, on a tour like this. It's like, okay, well, do you bring out a lighting director? Do you have a super crazy lighting show? Let's see. You're going to be mainly playing in the sun, because right. you go on at 7 every night. Okay, maybe we don't get the crazy awesome light show, uh, so we're not going to bring out that. Um, then I, I don't know you just like I think the more we do this I think I've gotten off on a tangent actually that's right um, but yeah I think we've learned a lot as far as like tour personnel goes right. and how to best like um, make things like efficient yet also like fiscally reasonable Right. So we do a lot of, like, multitasking. Like, uh, we might have a drum tech that also handles the keyboard tech stuff. Um, or the guitar tech might be the stage manager also. Um, you know, so there's a... Like, for instance, Zach, our tour manager, also is our front-of-house engineer. So um, trying to do things in ways where we're not having to pay, like for a 15-person crew, but we can still fulfill 15 right. roles, so to speak. How often do you guys, um, as a band, I mean, how often do you guys meet on business decisions and just touring decisions? I mean, is it, is it every day, or does it tend to be a couple times a week? Or I mean, when, I guess when you're in the throes of either an album cycle or a tour cycle. Um, I would say... It's not particularly often, um, but it's not like we never do that. Right. Um, we try and this tour we've been trying to meet once a week actually and sit down and 
just have a band chat. It doesn't necessarily need to be about like the business of right. being a band, but I think just like, I mean, in a way, just having a healthy relationship like that and sitting down with each other is important to the business, even if it's on a personal level. Right, right. Know. So you get your deal, Field by Ramen, you're probably completely psyched, right? Over the moon, which guy's been working for. And then your first release comes out swinging, and it's a you know a lot of airplay, big hits. What what are you thinking? Where's your head at, at this point when it's when it's all happening, when everything seems to be clicking? Yeah, I'd say like in in the throes of it, it's like hard to process. So it's basically just what you're thinking is keep up, you know, keep up with the schedule, um, you know, and, and try and just get your head above water enough to take a breath. So I think the most reflecting I've, I've done about that period of time happened all in my 30s. Um, and, and a lot of that success came early in my 20s. So mm -hmm. it's like, I think it required a little bit of distance for me to kind of process it all. Um, which has been great, because I kind of feel like right now this is a second chapter of the band. And so... A lot of a lot of reflection has like I think helped inform where we need to be headed right in this chapter of our career and I don't think that I don't think that that would have come had we not taken the space necessary for reflection you know? right if we had just continued to work and work and work and work and work and work I don't know if that any of those like moments would have uh, clarified. At what point are you looking at this as a career? I mean, I, I'm sure you, when you got in it, it's all, you know, I, I guess part of this podcast too is like my own perception when I was growing up. It's like, I want to be in a band, I want to get signed, I want to be famous, I want to be rich. But beyond that, you don't think about what am I doing in my 20s, what am I doing in my 30s, what am I doing in my 40s. So at what point, you know, if you're riding high in success, at what point do you look down the road five, ten years and think, I hope we're still doing this? Or you start to think like, you know, either what's next or how do we keep doing this like where where's your head you know when did you kind of start to look long term that's interesting I think um, so when we first got signed I definitely wasn't thinking oh this is a career I was thinking wow what a fantastic opportunity that we have this is amazing you know who does this happen to this is crazy just the fact that like we they bought us a tour van that's awesome. And then this guy is our booking agent. He just booked us, like, shows for six months. That's awesome. You know, and so to me it was just like, wow. And I think to all of us, it was just like, we've got this fantastic opportunity. This is great. This is all that matters. And then after a few years of doing that, that work paid off even more. And we got upstreamed, um, which is basically when we could sign to a label that owns your smaller independent label right. you got upstream to Atlantic Records and that's when it was just like oh this is like the big leagues I had no idea I was playing triple A ball for the last two or three years like wow and so that opens a whole you know whole new world um, and so it was through them that like uh, we started getting a lot more radio play and things like that um, and so that's when it jumped up quite a bit. I still don't think I thought about it as a career. I just thought about it as like, wow, this is awesome. It's such a cool opportunity, and it seems to be that it's on a really high level. That's great. Just keep up with the tours. And then I think after we did, actually you mentioned the Daryl Hall for President tour, we were towards the end of that, um, which was a headlining run for Gym Class Heroes. And uh, I remember... I remember that we were getting like our first pretty sizable payout from a tour at the end of that. And I'd ask our manager, like, I'm like, I don't know what to do with that. You know, what should I do with that? And he was like, I don't know, do you want to buy a house? And I was like, I know. I literally was still living in my mom's house and I, my bedroom from childhood. <laughs> so I never even, I didn't even think about getting an apartment, you know. So it didn't it just never occurred to me that that was a possibility and so I had thought about it and he was like well you know where would you want to move and I was like I don't know and he's like well how about New Jersey and I was like 
New Jersey sounds fine. <laughs> so he set me up with his realtor, and um, I landed in Red Bank, New Jersey, and, um, and I got a house, a townhouse, rather. Um, it was awesome. And that's when I realized it was a career. Do you still have it? No. Do you uh, turn it over, make profit? Uh, Did it become like it? <laughs> I turned it over. <laughs> Uh, now, basically, yeah, I, I loved living there. It was amazing. Um, and then when my wife and I started having children, it uh, felt like we wanted uh, more room, more sure. conducive to uh, having a family for us. And so uh, that's when we settled in Rochester, New York. Um, speaking of the headline tour, what, how much preparation goes into something like that when you were saying, you know, when you talk about lighting and just all the minutia, like how, is that something that takes, you know, two, three months to, to kind of nail down stuff for, right. or are you seeing stage designs, and is there, are you paying for someone to bring you stage designs, I mean, how does, what's, what's some of the intricacies of, of that process? Um, that can get as small or as large as any artist is willing to go with it, and so then, speaking about that tour specifically, I'd say there was very little preparation for it. We might have rehearsed for a day, but I don't remember it. And if we did, it wasn't a full production rehearsal. It was just like a get the musicians in a room. uh, All right, do we all know this song still? Yep, we do. Okay, cool, we got this. Let's go on tour. Um, uh, I do remember discussing backdrop designs and stuff for that. And, uh, yeah, so there's certainly a little bit of production that goes into it. now I would say a lot more and that's just because of like I think what we know is possible I think back then it was like there was things that we just didn't know were a possibility Um, so we we didn't think ahead to ask like oh can we see like the light I wonder if that was beneficial at the time to keep uh, a low overhead (laughs) yeah I, I think it possibly was um but now I'm a lot more interested in all that stuff. And so for a tour like this, I, we spent maybe two weeks on pre-production, which is basically any musical considerations that happen before you get in a room to rehearse. So um, we did pre-production, and, then, and we do that in my studio, so um, the studio rates are reasonable, or free rather. Um, <laughs> And uh, our, our keyboard player, Tyler, came up and stayed there. And uh, we just worked on stuff that way. So that basically when we get into rehearsals, we kind of have a blueprint. We have a roadmap that we can follow. It's not like um, you're sitting there making critical s- changes on the fly. It's like the set list has already been pretty well thought out. And um, you're just sort of making sure that you can execute everything stage. Um, I think a lot of really big artists might spend two months doing that sort of thing, even full production rehearsals. Right. So, um, I, I can't imagine that we'll ever be our band, regardless of whatever financial um, position we're in, whether it be incredibly high or incredibly low. I still think there's almost like kind of a, a basic effort that we'll put into every production, whether it's small or large scale. Right. Um, I want to get into a little bit of, since you, you know, some of your hits, um, you know, do sample, as you were bringing up, and it, it brings me back to, and I guess my question is, I, I'm naive to it, but I remember, like, the big hit that the Verve had, and they sampled oh, the Stones, and, and all you heard was them complain about how they gave it all away to the Stones. Mm-hmm. So... My question to you is, you know, you guys have the, you know, Breakfast in America sample. Um, the, is it Jermaine Stewart who did uh, oh, yeah, Close, Close Off? Off? That's great. Um, were, those, were those big chunks out of what would be money in your pocket? Or does it kind of work itself out because they are such big, you know, they are, the, the recognizability of the sample helps the song just become that more successful and it kind of pays for itself down the road. Yeah, I tend to think of it that way. Um, that for me, it was never like, oh, let's sample. Like you mentioned, Breakfast in America. It was never like, oh, let's sample that 
so that we can make a bunch of money off of that song. You know, it was just like we were literally just rehearsing one day and somebody put the record on and we started playing along to it. And it was like, oh, this feels really good and that's an interesting concept that we can base around that line, take a look at my girlfriend. So um, I'd say, like, it was never all that thought out. <laughs> but Was but it I, a surprise to you at the time that, like, what's his name, Roger Hudson or something? Like, Roger Hudson's going to get, you know, a quarter of your... <laughs> yeah, I would say even then when I found out, like, the neg- when, when that got negotiated, um, I wasn't... Um, I wasn't put off by it. I was like, right. oh, well, that makes sense. Yeah. Fair yeah. is fair. Another yeah, songwriter. totally. Like, we're out here, like, getting it. And, um, you know, people are paying attention to our band, and a lot of people like that song, so I'm happy, you know. I think it, you know, that opinion might vary from person to person, I'm sure. But um, for me, like, however all the parties involved with the sample can feel good about like their work at the end of the day I think it's like important so I'm I'm less concerned about the uh, fiduciary split I don't know if that's the right term (laughs) Um, so you guys ended up taking uh, hiatus when like uh, 2012 around Uh, I'd say the end of 2013 Um, where was your head then were you ready for a break and ready to try to do new things or what was kind of the context of the, of the break? I'd say I was like I could go either way at the time um, I think like in like the interest of us as individuals I think taking some time away for ourselves was necessary um, I, I'm sure I could have kept going through that period um, which I did, so it was like, for, for me that became kind of a pivot in my career where um, for the first time there wasn't gym class activity on the schedule for the year. And so for me, I think I like maybe hung around for like a month or so and then just got that itch to go out and create and perform. Um, and so... Yeah, I started touring with other artists uh, around 2014, and then that led to doing other compositional work, uh, video directors, doing ad spots, um, and doing podcasts, uh, underscore, stuff like that. Yeah, I, I want to get into that. before. Just before we do, who? how did you go about uh, hooking up with these other projects? Like, you toured with uh, is it, how do you say your name Ryan oh Rin Weaver Rin, yeah. Rin Weaver yeah um, at Kill the Frontman what was that oh Kill the Frontman that was actually a band of mine from college okay. so that's not like uh, anything that <laughs> that wasn't that. certainly nothing that would have made money uh, but uh, yeah so the way I hooked up with Rin Weaver was through her manager Kellogg who is um, a great friend and somebody that I met through the gym class world. So I think, like, when it came time to, like, you know, figure out what was next for me, I just sort of used my friends as, like, a sounding board to talk to people. Um, It's kind of a small universe, I feel like, once you get out there in the music world. And so um, just even letting people know, uh, oh, Matt's looking to get back on tour. It's like it's kind of enough to like get a couple emails to roll in yeah, or phone calls to yeah I mean because you can pound the pavement and say like oh I want to tour with an artist and so like you can hit up like you know this artist and this artist and this artist and this artist but like the chances that somebody's looking for a drummer right when you you know decide to pepper them with your um, you know random cold call is it's slim so uh I always say that nobody needs a drummer until they actually really do. Because that's, I mean, that's the premise of, like, any gig I've ever gotten. It's like, it's like the 11th inning. And they're like, <laughs> they need somebody. Like, they're loading the van. They're like, why do we have so much space? It's like, there's no drum kit. Yeah. <laughs> even, like, to play with Rin, I, 
I was at, on vacation uh, at Disney World with my family, which I don't, I don't ever take vacations, but I happened to. Um, it was on vacation, and I got the call that Marin needed a drummer for David Letterman, and it was like in like four days or something. I was like, I'm down, first of all, and you know, I, I wasn't even concerned about like how I could feasibly make that happen, whether I would have to cut my vacation short or what. Didn't matter. Um, but yeah, th- that's the way those things tend to work. It's like last minute. Is stuff like that a throw for you? Like you, you mentioned Letterman. Have you, you've done Kimmel. Have you done all the late night shows pretty much? I have, and we always missed Letterman. That was always the one where, like, I feel like the musical taste of that show was a little bit more indie than gym class tends to lean. And so uh, through playing with Rin, I got to do a lot of those really cool things that I had somehow managed to always miss with gym class. Um, for instance, like Coachella, uh, I did Bonnaroo with her, I did Austin City Limits Festival, um, Lollapalooza, a lot of these things that, like, in the past, gym class has always seemed to skirt for whatever reason. Right. Do you think you got pigeonholed as, as, a, as a warp tour band when you guys did it, what, four times? I think, if anything, I, we got pigeonholed as a more commercial band. Let's get into uh, the scoring for podcasts. How did that come about? It's funny. I, I, I want to know how that came about, but it's it's. I mean, you you're on probably one of the two of the most popular podcasts out there. So I'm curious to know how uh, you know how the beginnings of that, and you know how you, you started at the top. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Um, so around 2014, actually around some of the last gym class tours that we were doing, I had become really interested in composing music for film and television, and so I was working through a Berkeley School of Music program on the subject, um, and I came out of that and finished and was like, all right, I'm ready to score some TV shows and some movies and, you know, and just nothing, of course. Um, so... Then I continued to tour with Rin. Um, her guitar player, who's a Broadway player, had gotten an email from a friend who was like, hey, um, you know, I know you, you're on tour, you have a lot of off days. This American Life is looking for music. Um, you know, maybe it's something you're interested in. And my friend was like, well, I'm, I, don't, I don't record myself. It's not what I do but I know Matt does stuff like this. And so he pitched me the email, and I was immediately just like, yes, <laughs> let's do this. And so I started um, reaching out to the show's uh, music supervisor, uh, Damian Grave, who's really, really wonderful and has amazing musical taste. And, uh, yeah, just sending him music. And, like, then every day I would just, like, go into my studio at 8 a.m., conceive and write and record and produce and mix and master a song and then by the end of that workday have something to deliver to him and I don't know how many other people there were like me that were writing for the show but I can't imagine there was anyone that was as like hungry or right. like working nearly as hard as I was like for me it, it became a near obsession because I was always a fan of the show and I realized I think what a dry, barren wasteland the movie and uh, TV scoring world landscape had become for me. So I looked at this as like, well, this isn't film and TV, but it's like the Super Bowl of podcasts right. and audio journalism. So, um, yeah, I was just really stoked on the idea and treated it like a full-time job and just obsessed over giving them more and more music. And through doing that, like, started to get... I feel really um, in sync with like the sounds that worked really well on the show and the pacing. And I started to think a lot about how you could mix a song in such a way that it would almost like um, act as a pillow for like where like the narration tends to sit, right. you know. And like so, I got really obsessed with like all these minor details that could 
really be valid, valuable music for that specific show. So um, I did that for a while, and then through that, um, got asked to provide some score for S Town, which um, turned out to be really, really great. Also, um, yeah, forty million, forty million. <laughs> is that what it's at? I think so. That's uh, that's, what I, that's what I found. So in the the process of that, is it are they giving you? I mean, at times I assume you're just kind of conceiving stuff in your head, like you're saying you're imagining, you know, putting, you know, where, where words may fall. But are you getting any direction in terms of like, here's the topic we need it. This is the tone, you know, go, give us something. Right. Like what? How do you, you know, if you have a, a blank palette to work with, how are they? Are they giving you a couple colors to to use? So no, not really. And I'd say that's like. That's such a rare thing, like to have to be given no um, no creative constraints. It's just like anything goes, and it's either going to work or it's not going to work. And um, those stakes almost seem a little severe because there's certainly no guarantee that anything I ever write for the show will be put on. Right. You know, it's no like uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not set in stone that way. But to me, that's exciting because kind of forces you to like I don't know conceive of what might work best uh, when I did S-Town I got a script initially and so I used that for a while to write off of and I would go through the script and like highlight characters or um, certain moments that felt important or significant and then I would try and imagine like what what does the song sound like for that character or that person or, or that moment like you know in, during the course of the show there's a funeral that happens and so I would think like okay what is what is like the uh, eulogy music sound like for that character um, and so that was a lot of fun for me it kind of empowered me and I think that that show is, has always like empowered me as like you know one of the people that scores music for it to like sort of choose my own adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at a certain point during that show, I did get some audio tape, which was really important to, like, because there's some very uh, intriguing accents and, like, uh, language, I think, in that show. And so that kind of started to inform some of the musical choices I was making, like, trying to, like, not necessarily make, like, southern-sounding songs, right. but... Um, almost think about like okay how could it how could I put a banjo in a song in a way that doesn't sound like banjo music or, right or like how do you infuse some of these like rural elements into the songs so it was a really challenging and fun project to be involved with um you can be broad as you like is does it pay well I would say it pays well in opportunity and um credit Right. I've never felt more like I've never felt like my contributions were more valued as with like when I've done work for like public radio. Mm-hmm. I I think that like it's probably no secret that the that it's not you know the money's not exactly sexy, <laughs> but just like I mean for instance like there's been other opportunities that I'm pretty sure have stemmed from those like opportunities right. that I've had with this American life in S Town. Like I think that is intriguing to some people. And so I've done like I've scored ads and stuff like yeah. that that tend to pay rather well. And so I don't know how much of that to attribute to certainly my experience working on some of these really highly credible shows. Right. But for for me like I think it's it's important that there always be a balance in my so it's like I'm not looking at my career as uh, a vehicle for becoming incredibly wealthy. I think my career is an opportunity for me to, I see it as an opportunity for me to work really hard and like get derive satisfaction right. out of my particular skill set. So on something like say an ad spot where I might get a brief that says we need a song feels young 
they use the term urban a lot in that world. And, like, there's a lot of, like, things that get thrown around this whole language that you, as the composer, have to interpret right. to mean, okay, they want, like, all right, they want, like, a break beat, and they want it up-tempo, let's see, young, they want these, you know, certain sound palettes. And, like, that, to me, is great, and I love it, because I love trying to help somebody achieve their vision. I'm looking at the brand, or I'm looking at the video director, and I'm like, awesome, like, you want it young and urban and all these things. Let's do. Let's do that. How do we do the best job at that? Let's do it. That's fun, but at the end of the day, I've created a piece of music that, to me, I can almost like have a little distance from because it's not my song. Yes. It's, it's more like it's like I've created that. Or um, yeah, I can't think of a better word. You've kind like, of created for someone else's context. Yeah. Right, and I'm I'm happy because I want to see them happy like I want the client whoever the client is to be super stoked um, but when I've done work on This American Life in S-Town I feel like those songs are my songs like I've created those because there's been no creative constraints there's right. been like nobody's put any type of um, you know limitations on on me as an artist it's like it either works or it doesn't work for them have you had to tweak anything even like you know, can you can you open this up like ten seconds longer so that you know the phrasing works? I mean, I so know. there was one instance <laughs> ever where I had had to tweak something, and I was happy to. I was like, I totally get that. It was right. something that like, it, and it wasn't even like we need you to tweak this. It was like, man, this one would be so great if only there wasn't this, you know, synth arpeggio happening. It's a little rapid right in that section. It was like, let's take it out. That's the best idea ever. Do it. And so I did it, and everybody wins. Everybody's happy, you know. Now, do you hope this will still possibly parlay into TV and film? Yeah, I, I hope so. In the in the idea that, like, I I'm just looking to like get satisfaction out of writing music, and so if like TV or film is part of that, then I I would love the opportunity challenge for that um, I'm just looking to like have fun and like do stuff that I'm like super proud of um, and so S-Town is one of those moments where it's like I feel like I got to experience that like having getting getting to the final product and just being so happy feeling right. so good about that because honestly like you don't always get that like when, when, it, when you hear like a song from an artist or anything, any number of finished pieces of music can't always assume that that artist is particularly happy about that, you know, and, and, I, and I find most producers and artists feel that way, I, I have a friend who's an amazing producer, and he told me recently that he, he's never had a mix of a song that he's like, really stoked on, so this guy who's just done wonderful things in his career is saying that like, every piece of music you've ever heard of his he's not been happy with the mix of that song. And I totally get that. I think it's quite common. And so, like, to be able to work in the world of scoring with, like, public radio and have something get finished, and I'm like, yes! I love everything about this, and I wouldn't change a thing. That's, like, quite special yeah. in, in the career <laughs> of an artist, I think. So I want more of that, basically. And if that's movies or TV, that would be great. And if it's, you know, scoring an ad for, like, a... Uh, Doritos or something cool. Right. Like I'm up for anything as long as I can like get to the end and be like, yes, we did it. It's amazing. I love it. Do you have anybody represent rep representing you for that for commercial work or you know soundtrack work? Not particularly. I have a few um, connections, I guess, that I've made like through through a lot of work and. Um, a lot of pestering people, I'm sure, but reaching out and meeting people. I'm really bad at networking, um, but I think I'm a pretty thoughtful person, and so if I can, like, get somebody to listen to me, like, and have, like, a, have a nice conversation with somebody, I think it can usually uh, be good for me. So, I don't know. I, I have a few people, but no, I don't have anybody representing me or anything like that. Uh, so what's next? What's uh, what is five, five years down the road, or between now and the future? I think um, 
Well, so I guess to start first, what's next? What's next is um, gym class album cycle. We're probably halfway through an album's worth of material right now, uh, and and a lot of it that I feel really really excited about. That's cool. Really happy, and we're all feeling that way. Like it's like it's a very good vibe. We've been working in Nashville a lot, um, and. It's been great. Like, we wrote a song that's like, it's like a country song. It's a straight-up country song. But it's like an old country song. It's like Charlie Rich or kind of like old Sun Records, kind of Elvis, Elvis-y. Um, very unexpected, but so tasteful. And, like, I think there was something about, like, we didn't go to Nashville to write a country song. It right. just kind of happened. There's something about, like, osmosis. Yeah, totally. Like, being in that environment, it just, like, comes through you. Um, and, and so that's, like, a song that I've, of ours that I'm kind of obsessed with. Like, can't wait for everybody to hear. Um, so, we'll, anyways, we'll go and we'll finish an album uh, after this tour. Uh, maybe we'll release some new music in the middle of this tour. I'm not sure. Uh, I think right now there's no great push. Like, no, nobody's really looking. I mean, look, we've been out of like the touring and industry world for like four or five years. I don't think there's anybody like. I tapped my yeah. watch <laughs> for those of you listening. I don't think there's anybody that's like making us feel like we're under a, lot, a great amount of pressure. It's like it's kind of we'll release music when we're ready to, when we're happy. Um, yeah, we'll go and we'll hopefully do an album cycle, and it will be very successful. And uh, we'll tour a lot more, and we'll be happy with our performances. Um, hopefully, we'll do the cool thing. You know, it's, it's always very important. It's just like, you know, you hope things are successful, but it's not necessarily why you're doing things, you know, you're doing things to try and, I don't know, I feel like we, gym class has always done well when we're sort of like the oddball, when right. we're allowed to be this quirky sort of musically ambiguous uh, thing. So, um, yeah, hopefully we'll continue to be the weird... Uh, <laughs> Alternative hip hop rock electro band that people are accustomed to and uh, do a lot more cool stuff. Sounds good. Uh, I I end every show with the final five. That's the same five questions everybody gets. Oh, cool. So let's, let's go there. Uh, the first question is if your house is on fire, what do you go back to get that's kind of a music uh, memorabilia or something that's meaningful? That kind of represents you or your career or your music career. Wow. Um, so assuming all the family and the family yeah, dogs out. are all taken out of the house, I go back. So there's like a, when we, I think at the beginning of the show, I was just mentioning us playing at the Smith Opera House. And when we played at the Smith Opera House, which was a big home, homecoming show for us, um, the newspaper like did like a couple page spread and like photographed a lot of it and talked to us about it. And my mom somehow got these, like, they make, like, they press these papers on these blue tin sheets. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's old school. And they, like, kind of give them away, I guess, if, if like, you come. It's like, it's like almost like court records that you can just look at if you're the public. If you're the public, you can just show up and ask for a page out of that, and they'll give you the tin sheet for it. And so my mom went and, like, just hoarded all of the tin sheets. And so, and I took one and I gave the others to my bandmates. That's very cool. Um, but I had this tin sheet framed of like the front page of us playing there and it's like I think that's kind of meaningful in that it sort of sums up our career and our, the arc of like us leaving our hometown and moving on and then sort of circling back and being recognized uh, for it it's kind of cool that's very cool and very worth risking your life going back <laughs> into a burning house for <laughs> I don't know that I'd ri- risk my life for it but it's meaningful so, so you wouldn't get the MTV Best New Artist Award of uh, 2007. Yeah, that I could care less about. That's actually like currently a toilet paper holder in my house. I, I saw that on your Instagram. I want. I want to ask you: Did it ever mean anything? Like when it happened, was you like, "Holy shit, we got an MTV award"? Or what? Did it mean it kind of fades over time? You're like, ah, it doesn't mean shit. I would say that the reaction was "Holy shit," but it wasn't necessarily like, "Holy shit, this is so meaningful." It was right. like, "Holy shit, they gave us <laughs> one of these." Whoa, that's crazy. That's big. 
other people get these, we don't get these, you know, so it was that moment, but it wasn't like, I treasure this, this means so much, it wasn't this Oscar acceptance sure. moment, where you're like, being recognized for your contributions, it, it felt, it always felt a little more superficial than sure. that, you know, so there's not too much self-worth wrapped up in that, and if there were, I would probably feel like that was a bad thing. <laughs> um, yeah, you beat out Amy Winehouse and Carrie Underwood. At least that's what the that's, that's so what the they got said. so they got it wrong. Obviously, <laughs> that's what happened. All right. Question number two: uh, If I was at liberty to give you a check for a million dollars to give it to one charity, which one charity would you select to give it mm-hmm. to? That's interesting. I guess I don't know specifically a lot of charities that come to mind, but, like, I would think that it would be something related to uh, arts and underprivileged schools. Sure. Things like that where, like, um, I don't don't know of any specific case, but I've heard about, like, you know, uh, music programs or things like that getting pulled from schools if there's budgetary constraints. So, you know, maybe, like, not just taking it and just giving it to one school, but sort of spreading that wealth around and just making sure people, I'm not saying put a recording studio in the school, but maybe make sure there's a couple trumpets laying around, you know, like, as long as everybody has a baseline access to music, I think that's good, so maybe something related to that. Okay. Question three is, what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? nothing really meaningful or thoughtful comes to mind. I'm just going to say Lose Yourself by Eminem. Okay. Just going kind of raging, you know. Is that a big, I mean, is that what, if you had a, a, a mixtape of your favorite songs, would that be on it? No, not necessarily. But I've been thinking a lot about walk-up music for baseball and stuff like that. Like, uh, what makes a good, I'm, I'm intrigued by the baseball music when the guys walk to home plate. Like, I'm intrigued by what they pick. Yeah. And we recently went to a baseball game and, um, I was just studying the music that the players would choose. Because you'll hear, you know, a lot of just hype stuff. Eminem, you'll hear, like, uh, the White Stripes. You hear Blur song, too. But one guy played Etta James, and it was just this real slow, soulful soulful number. And I was so like, wow, I would have never guessed that. It's funny. How do you do for the game? Was he like two for four? Or um, I can't <laughs> like remember what player. Play your walk-up music. I think it might have been Robbie Ray. Don't quote me, but uh, pitcher. So he probably was over four <laughs> in hitting because he stinks as a hitter. I'm sure. No offense, Robbie Ray. Um, 180 from that is what's stuck on repeat in hell. What's <laughs> uh, stuck on repeat in hell? Um, you can dance if you wanna. The safety, the safety dance. dance. Yeah, no, it's got to be. Yeah. Men without hats, okay. To me, that's probably the most annoying song ever. <laughs> Which doesn't mean it's a bad song. Sure. It just means it's annoying. And on repeat. In hell. <laughs> uh, last question is, what is the best concert you've ever witnessed? Okay, so the best concert I've ever witnessed, uh, I would say, is Sufjan Stevens. And he did some performance of um, his last record, uh, Carrie and Lowell, I think it's called. And he just played the full album front to back, and it was the most beautiful, just sounding show that I've ever seen. And I was not at, I just saw it on YouTube. Um, so do I have to be in attendance, I guess, for that? Let's, uh, you can, it could be a two-parter. Okay. So in, it, in attendance. Oh, in attendance. Um... So part one is your favorite YouTube concert. <laughs> yeah. Part yeah. two is. is <laughs> so Sufian is my favorite YouTube concert I've ever witnessed. Um, best show I've ever been to. Or if you want to opt out of that, you can just. You can. I got it. Okay. I got it anyways. Um, last summer. Oh man, just, that's tough. So I did last. In the fall, I went and saw Brian Wilson perform Pet Sounds in its entirety, and that that was amazing. 
Uh, also, I saw Hans Zimmer perform kind of his body of work with like a hundred person orchestra wow. and choir and like visuals and all of that. And so, on the scale of production, I got to go with my man Hans Zimmer. Brian Wilson Beach Boys. Yeah, that's pretty that's cool. That's classic. What was your first concert? My first concert was the Smashing Pumpkins. I saw them play on the Melancholy Tour uh, in Rochester. And not not long after that, we've been your boys 311 here. Uh, I saw them play in like 8th grade, I think. That's funny. It's amazing. They, they must... <laughs> You're making them feel old. I don't tell them any of that. <laughs> no, I don't say, man, when I was a kid, I used to... Because I've heard, you know, people tell me that. Oh, you guys were the soundtrack to my high school. And it's like, I appreciate what you're sharing with me, but that never makes me feel good. You know, it never makes you feel good to hear that. And so I came into this tour, like, very making a pointed effort to not share with those guys, right. like, my experiences around them as a youth. You know, I want to be peers. Got to keep it cool, you know. Well, Matt, thank you for sitting down with me and thank you and talking. Yeah. This is great. Thanks. All right, a big thanks to Gym Class Heroes drummer Matt McGinley, who is super accommodating and a pleasure to talk to. You can catch Gym Class Heroes on tour until mid-September. Go to gymclassheroes.com for tour dates. And to check out Matt's foray into original music for podcasts, go to smalltalkmusica.com. That's M-U-S-I-C-A dot com. All right, we'll be back next week on your favorite podcast platform with the bassist whose opening gig for Warren Zevon turned into a surreal evening hanging out with Hunter S. Thompson. So tune in for that. It's curtains for episode 35. Good night, Cleveland. <laughs>